Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This season, we covered stories from all over the world. First, we traveled to British Columbia and spoke with the couple who found the first documented Asian giant hornet nest in North America. John Holabeshin told us about his adventure trying to locate the nest. Got there around five. Now, this was mid-September, so the sun was just starting to, to get low in the sky. There's a trail through there that's, that's popular. We started in. Mufita's going fairly quickly because she wants to cover as much ground as possible. I'm walking a little slower. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, this is a good time to spot them if we're going to spot them because the sun being low in the sky catches things a little differently, kind of like when you see dust particles in a, in a room when the sun's filtering through. And sure enough, we were there for, what, five minutes? Um, I saw something fly overhead. I stopped, I waited, and then I saw a couple more. I was pretty sure these were the Asian giant hornets. And as he waited for his wife, Mafita, he felt a painful, fiery, stinging sensation that quickly overwhelmed him. And I progressed into feeling like I was hit by a two-by-four suddenly. Looked down, there's one, you know, six inches from my face, on my chest, stinging me. I'm journalist Erica Bella, and this season on Global News What Happened To, we brought you incredible stories and spoke to the people at the heart of each one to find out what has happened since the news cycle turned and cameras walked away. Like in the case of the devastating fire that nearly destroyed one of the most iconic cathedrals on earth in 2019. A large crowd in Paris watched in horror as smoke billowed from the historic site and red-hot flames shot out of the cathedral's roof. And then... Notre Dame's spire came crashing down. Gasps from the crowd left speechless staring at the destruction in front of them. That was uh, a moment that I think everyone realized this was something that was incredibly serious and it could be the end of something that, you know, was historical. Um, certainly it was something that I think made many people realize, you know, there was something now happening here, which is going to make history, which, you know, is, is, is something that everybody will remember in some way, shape or form. Absolutely horrible moment because you think to yourself, this could be the end of, of an amazing, amazing place. In 2021, there was a vote to rebuild Notre Dame to its prior state. Michel Picot, who started the charity Friends of Notre Dame de Paris and led the restoration of the cathedral, says this includes rebuilding a spire identical to the one designed in the 19th century, which collapsed back in 2019. So, for instance, to uh, build uh, a framework, a timber framework of the roof, uh, to, to, to have a lead covering also of the roof, and to to uh, rebuild the spire as it was built by Viollet-le-Duc with its uh, timber uh, framework as well and its lead covering. So, which means that if you remember uh, the cathedral before the fire, so there was a, a, a unique, I would say, uh, uniqueness of this uh, roof of the cathedral, which we call the forest because the roof actually was made of a, a structure, of a framework 
made of about 2,000 uh, oak trees. Um, and so this, this uh, framework will be rebuilt as it was uh, before the fire. This, this framework, by the way, was partly a framework uh, from the Middle Ages. So, so part of the, the forest was uh, really from the Middle Ages. While the target date to reopen the cathedral is 2024, Michel says the work will be far from over. We know already that, for instance, the, uh, the restoration of the external part of the choir and, and of those flying buttresses I mentioned in the beginning will not be done in 2024. So this will be done afterwards. And so most probably the, the, the full restoration will last until the end of the decade and, and perhaps even more. And, and we are currently raising the funds for the next reconstruction phase, as I said, which will uh, allow us to reopen the cathedral uh, in 20, at the end of 2024. But we know already that these pledges, as I said, of 800 million will not be enough to fully restore the cathedral beyond 2024. So this is what we are working, uh, working on, not only to transform the, the pledges in, uh, in uh, real funding, I would say in uh, cash funding, but also to ensure that we will be able beyond 2024 to fully restore the cathedral and afterwards also to maintain the cathedral because the, the main problem we had uh, when we began this project is that the, the funds uh, dedicated to the maintenance of the cathedral since the last restoration of the 19th century were evidently far from enough to... Uh, to do it properly, hence the situation we are in right now. I think this is important because this is, this is part of uh, Notre Dame Cathedral is part of our uh, heritage, if you will. So I think people uh, were absolutely shocked to see this cathedral uh, in flames and, uh, and burning. And so because this is part of our, uh, I would say, world heritage not only for Parisian people, but for people from all over the world. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. We then traveled to West Africa, where we heard about communities devastated by the worst Ebola outbreak in history, and Dr. Kent Brantley's experience fighting the virus on the front line. For weeks, he watched patients succumb to the virus and witnessed the ripple effect it had on the community he was there to help. So it was physically exhausting. It was also emotionally very hard because we were seeing so many patients die. And that really weighs on your mind and on your heart. You know, these are people's mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. And they could be my mother or father or brother or sister. And then you put on top of that the mental stress of knowing that you're dealing with a seemingly universally fatal disease and you're having to do things that, that were not a part of my normal job as a doctor to prepare dead bodies, put them in the body bags. Like that was not a task I normally did in the hospital. 
but in the Ebola treatment unit, we all had to work together to do those things. So it was incredibly challenging. Ebola devastated communities in West Africa. The WHO estimates over 28,000 people were sick with the disease and more than 11,000 died. But Dr. Robert Fowler, a Toronto critical care physician who has worked with the WHO, says outbreaks were contained in part because of an experimental antibody treatment created in Canada, which hoped to prevent the high mortality rates seen early on. It was tested in West Africa and proved to be successful. And the trial that was done in West Africa was done in very small numbers near the later stages of the outbreak. Yet, uh, even in small numbers, it gave a sense that mortality may be reduced in a clinical trial. You're looking at, okay, if we can bring mortality down from 70 to 40 by giving just best medical care that's available in the context where you're treating patients, can we do better than that? And and the first antibody trial was promising, looking like maybe we could get another 15% reduction in, in mortality, which is terrific. We just don't see that sort of effect size for uh, most medications and most conditions in, in any part of the world. Um, and so this was very encouraging, both on the, the notion of using antibodies and also in the specific treatment of Ebola. Well, the treatment certainly helped. He said it wasn't what ended the West African outbreak. The thing that stops these outbreaks are virtually never the treatments. They're always sort of grounded in in public health interventions. And I would say throughout West Africa, as an outsider's sort of, you know, look at the the arc of, of that outbreak, when the population and when public health was able to start to make inroads on the notion of this is a viral infection that's spread person to person. We can stop the transmission by recognizing when someone's sick that we need to break that transmission chain through sanitation, hand washing, keeping people both safe and and, and isolated from those that are sick, promoting people going to hospital where you could both treat them but also, you know, take them out of an environment where they may infect other people. All of those public health maneuvers, getting the population sort of behind a strategy in the community uh, is the thing that, that, you know, ends these outbreaks. Vaccination certainly helps. And we have seen that the risk of people getting Ebola after a population is vaccinated around index infections, very, very helpful. But vaccine was introduced relatively late into the West African outbreak and, and had some effect for sure. But, um, but I would say the, the vast majority of the, the reason that that outbreak stopped was because the population you know, was able to stop Ebola getting behind public health measures. And this season, we dug deeper and brought you stories that looked at viral moments and the people behind them. People like Ted Williams, the man with the golden voice. He spoke candidly about his experience with addiction and the aftermath of the video that launched him into stardom. Hey, I'm going to make you work for your dollar. Say something with that great radio voice. When you're listening to nothing but the best of oldies, you're listening to Magic 98.9. And I knew nothing about viral. I didn't even have an internet phone. Uh, I thought that uh, viral would have meant that a virus was uh, installed or a virus did this or did that. You know, I was no way I was going to admit or 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 up to nothing on the internet because I don't have ways and means to put it on there. So when he initially did the video, I lied. Of course, it was very public that I lied. You know, I said I had two years clean and I look like a hot mess. Yeah, I thought maybe it was a job possibility. 
I figured if he had a camera, he's got a microphone. Maybe he'll take it home, look at it, and see if I'm worthy of hiring. That was it. I hadn't heard no more from him until that, that day. January 4th, 2011, I find out through one of our local radio stations, the Morning Zoo, and uh, uh, find out that I, uh, there was a viral video. I'm, I'm the first viral video of the Internet age, or I'm an Internet sensation, or any of that. And Ted wasn't the only incredible viral story we revisited. We also spoke to Jason Russell and the campaign that aimed to shed light on Joseph Coney and the Lord's Resistance Army. The intention of Coney 2012 was to not just bring to light this conflict and make Coney a household name, but it was to make sure that the U.S. troops and that any pressure from any government, including the International Criminal Court, stays on and keeps hyper-focused. You know, I think we... I like to think about it as Coney 2012 took about six months to create, but it was like 10 years in the making. It was like everything we had learned about activism, about putting things online, about what gets people motivated. And we put all of our tricks and tips into this movie. And I remember seeing the posters on a bus stop and thinking somebody got out of their home, printed these posters themselves, and put them on this bus stop in my hometown. Like, that was so surreal because it had been released maybe 24, 36 hours, and here's a physical manifestation of what we ask people to do. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. I think, you know, I left Gavin's, you know, preschool meeting in order to go outside and take a call with the Weinstein Company who wanted to buy the film and like have it win an Oscar. And then it just kept going from there. It was one person after the other who wanted to talk to us, who wanted to get the story out. You know, there were clothing stores that wanted to put the t-shirts in their stores. Um, we had no idea how many action kits we were going to sell. We eventually purchased every red blank t-shirt in North America like you couldn't find a red blank t-shirt because we had to fulfill all of these orders. And so it was really just a lot. I think the third day I was in LA doing many, many interviews back to back from one show to the next. And then I got on a red eye, got off the plane, stepped into the car and was on the Today Show. And then, you know, People Magazine, New York Times, it was just so overwhelming um, to feel that kind of energy. And in my mind, I didn't really see a backlash coming because, you know, for the most part, it was like, well, this is a good thing. We're stopping violence, right? And we're doing it in a creative way and we're getting as many people involved. So I didn't know at the time, but there's kind of this internet rule that anything that becomes big or viral, you have to wait three days and on the third day, there will be a backlash. There will be a swing in the other direction. We also revisited businesses and products that made us feel nostalgic, like Blockbuster. No more late fees. No more late fees. No more late fees. No more late fees. No more late fees.
someday, you'll remember where you were when you first heard that there are no more late fees at Blockbuster. If you need an extra day or two... And Crystal Pepsi. Pepsi is hoping for a clear advantage in the cola wars. In an industry with $48 billion a year in sales on the line, the beverages may be soft, but the competition is rock hard. So it's no small gamble Pepsi-Cola takes today, unveiling in test markets the newest weapon in the cola wars, Crystal Pepsi. Season two was packed with people, places, and things that dominated headlines. From the Ikea monkey to the Toronto van attack, we have brought you stories that we think matter to you. So as we wrap up season two and start prep for season three, I wanted to take a moment to thank you. It's been such a pleasure sharing each and every episode with you over the last few months, and we hope to bring you more next season. If you're joining us for the first time, take a listen to some of the incredible stories we have put together and let us know what you think and what we should cover. I wanted to thank the team behind What Happened To, producer Dila Velazquez, and audio producers Rob Johnson and Rosalind Kufour. Also, a thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck. We are continuing to look at stories for our next season, so if you have a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach out to me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca or on Twitter at Erica Vella. We'll see you in the new year.